Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, a while back, uh, Jesus was approached by a scientist uh, who said, hey, listen, Jesus, we appreciate everything that you've done for us, but uh, we don't really need you anymore. You see, we've got all this technology now, and we can do pretty incredible things. We can clone human beings and transplant organs, all kinds of stuff that used to be considered miraculous. And, and Jesus said, well, okay, I guess, but... Well, but, but, but before we go too far, let's just test this theory and see if you really can do life without me. In fact, let's, uh, let's have a little contest. Let's see who can make the best human being, you or me. Then the scientist agreed and reached down, scooped up a handful of dirt and said, okay, Jesus, sounds like a great idea. We'll do it just like you did it in the good old days when you made the very first human being out of a handful of dirt. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 not so fast. Get your own dirt. <laughs> Never ever, ever underestimate Jesus. Can I say that one more time? Never, ever, ever underestimate Jesus. Back in January, we had no idea, obviously, what this year was going to hold for us. But we started off 2020 in January in Colossians chapter 1 by saying that what we always need most is a clearer vision of Jesus. And that has proven true this year. And so now that we're on the back end of the year, facing even more uncertainty, that's what I want to say to you again today. What we always need most is a clearer vision of Jesus. Which is why we're kicking off this brand new series today through the book of Revelation called A Clearer Vision of the Future. Because I have no idea what next year is going to look like, how the election is going to turn out, what the virus is going to do. But the book of Revelation does give us some rock solid truths about the future that we can lean on. And more importantly, it gives us a clearer vision of Jesus. Now, you may have heard that the book of Revelation has a little bit of a reputation as the haunted house, perhaps, of the Bible books. And so as we prepare to kind of get a 30,000-foot view of the book of Revelation this month, we have to keep three things in mind first. The style of Revelation, the symbols of Revelation, and the background of Revelation. First, the style. Uh, Revelation is apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. Now, when you hear that term, you probably think of the end of the world, right? But, but that's not exactly it. Uh, the first word in the book of Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. That's where the book gets its name. It can also mean disclosure or unveiling, literally. And apocalypse is a revealing. Uh, check out this. The, the first three verses of Revelation says it like this. The revelation, the apocalypsis, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me. <laughs> and blessed are those who hear it. That's you. 
and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. This is actually the only Bible book with a specific blessing attached to reading and hearing it. And so we're going to be blessed this month as we study the book of Revelation. From the very beginning, from the get-go, Revelation is apocalyptic, meant to reveal. And you know this, you experience this as your kids grew up, right? When the little baby gets old enough to eventually learn that when you're hiding behind the blanket, you're not actually gone, that you are there, that you're just out of sight. And so the baby then grew to love it when you would drop the blanket and they could see you again and you play peekaboo, right? And the baby loves this. And that's what Revelation is. It's this divine game of, of, of peekaboo. That's what's happening. The point of Revelation is not to predict the future, but to pull back the curtain on the present. This book is, it's not a crystal ball or a, a Rubik's cube for the end times. It's a peekaboo. It's a peekaboo uncovering of the invisible realities that are shaping our visible world. And the primary thing that the book of Revelation reveals is Jesus. Verse 1 says, the revelation from Jesus Christ. But the Greek text actually there literally says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this revelation is both from Jesus and of Jesus. He is the one doing the revealing and the one being revealed. So that means that if our reading of Revelation leads us to anything other than a deeper love for Jesus, then we're reading it wrong. Revelation style is apocalyptic, meant to reveal Jesus. That's the style. And this apocalyptic style speaks in symbols. If you've ever tried to read Revelation before, you know this, that on these pages we see strange beasts and falling stars and a seven-headed dragon and bulls and trumpets and people eating scrolls and bottomless pits. This is not exactly normal stuff. You might find yourself thinking, what kind of a dark Wizard of Oz mashup have we fallen into? Toto, I don't think we're in Psalm 23 anymore. (laughs) And they may seem weird at first, but these symbols speak powerfully. More than mere words, in fact. That's why, for example, it's much more offensive for someone to burn our flag than it is for them to just say, well, I don't like America, because symbols speak. But unfortunately, we're a couple thousand years removed from the original audience of this letter, and so we have to work pretty hard to understand their language and interpret their symbols. It's like if an alien landed in Plainfield today and picked up a a copy of the Indy Star and saw on it a a red elephant playing tug-of-war with a blue donkey, they would have no idea what that meant. But we do, don't we? And so we have to work hard to put ourselves in their shoes and unpack these symbols together this month. That's the style and the symbols. And in order to understand that, we need to know the background. Remember, this is a real letter written to real people, living in a real place with real everyday issues. Just like every other letter in the New Testament, when we read this, we are overhearing a conversation. So we have to ask, who is this letter from? Who is this letter to? Well, Revelation is written to seven churches in in Asia Minor. Uh, That's modern-day Turkey. And it was written around the year 96 AD, near the end of the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Uh, This is Domitian. I believe we have a picture of him here. That's Domitian. And Domitian, he was brutal. He was bloody. He was paranoid. In fact, he killed 20 senators and three members of his own family who he perceived as threats to his power. In fact, he was so disliked that after his death, the Roman Senate banned his memory and erased his name from the public record. And this is the situation in which these people are living. Now, the letter of Revelation is from John, who was one of the 12 disciples, but it's also from Jesus. 
Let's take a look at this text here, verses four through 11. It's kind of a long chunk, but hang with me. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. So that's God the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne, seven is the number of completion, so that's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there we see the Son, crucified, resurrected, and reigning. So this letter is from the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. John continues. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, interestingly, the Emperor Domitian actually claimed that title for himself, the Almighty, literally the ruler of all. But God's saying, (laughs) nope, sorry, buddy, that title's for me. John continues. He says, I, John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John here, you might remember him from some of our stories. He's the last living member of Jesus's 12 disciples. The others have all been killed. And here's John. He's an old man in exile for his faith on a small barren island. And one day he's just spending time with God because what else do you have to do when you're in exile on a small rocky little island? And just like we said last week, God speaks through his spirit. Jesus gives John a message to these churches because These Christians are facing two crises, two crises that we still, in fact, face today. And the first one is this. They're facing a crisis of familiarity, a crisis of familiarity. These Christians, they're living in the Roman Empire. They are walking around the city, seeing these massive temples to pagan gods all around them. And and by all appearances, the emperor with his mighty armies and massive majestic statues and limitless wealth. By all appearances, the emperor was indeed Lord of the world, just like he said he was. And these Christians, I mean, week after week, meeting in their tiny little house churches, worshiping some crucified Jewish carpenter, they might just be starting to wonder if they've got it all wrong. They're suffering from a condition that has infected Christians for centuries. One preacher calls it JDD, Jesus deficit disorder. Their Jesus was too small. And what happens when your view of Jesus is too small? Well, sometime this week, take a look at chapters two and three of Revelation. This is Jesus's messages to these seven churches and you'll see that they are a mess. I mean, they're doing all kinds of things. They're they're losing their love. They're putting up with false prophets. They're tolerating sexual immorality. They're living lives of self-reliance. They're looking a whole lot like the world around them because they've become too familiar with Jesus and they stopped seeing him for who he really is. And a diminished view of Jesus leads to a diminished church. 
And we see this over and over and over again in the gospels, right? Every time the disciples think they've got Jesus figured out, think they fit him into their little box, they just miss him entirely. It's a crisis of familiarity. (laughs) Please listen, this sermon is for me. You see, I'm what you call a Buick. And I'm not talking about the car. I'm a brought up in church kid. Uh, My dad's a preacher. My mom directed the children's choir. I was practically born in a pew. I knew all the answers in Sunday school. I knew what Jesus looked like. I I, I recognize Jesus. Yeah, he's that uh, nice guy in the robe, you know, the flowing, long brown hair, kind of high cheekbones, real smiley looking guy, sometimes looks very serene and calm. He's generally holding a kid on his lap or a sheep. I, I know what Jesus looks like, right? Uh, But sometimes in my mind, if I'm being honest, Jesus is a little bit more like Mr. Rogers and a little less like Mr. T. (laughs) Nice guy, but not much help in a fight. (laughs) You know, A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, And for these seven churches, and maybe for us, maybe our default mental picture of Jesus is too small, too tame, too safe. Maybe it's like we're looking at him from the wrong end of the telescope. It's a crisis of familiarity. Let me say it again. Never, ever, ever underestimate Jesus. I can remember as a kid when President Bush came to our hometown and later in high school when President Obama came to town and the whole place was just buzzing, right? Have you ever been in the presence of someone important? You get a little nervous, don't you? (laughs) Your pulse quickens, your tongue gets tied, you catch your breath, you might start to sweat a little bit. When's the last time you felt that with Jesus? I mean, when you came to worship today, did your pulse quicken? Did you catch your breath? Did your tongue get a little tied? Because if not, you might be in a crisis of familiarity and what you might need is a clearer vision of Jesus. John got one here in Revelation chapter one. John hears a voice like Niagara thunder and he turns to see who's speaking and he lays eyes on the blazing glory of Jesus in all of his supernova brilliance, his terrifying soul-exploding holiness. And here's how he describes it. Verses 12 through 16, he says... I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now, when the Jews heard this description, it would have been deja vu. The bells would have been ringing in their memory, because John is drawing on all kinds of Old Testament imagery here to describe Jesus. For starters, he says that Jesus is like a son of man, Well, that's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 says big text where it describes God on his throne in heaven, the ancient of days. And it also describes Jesus ascending up on the clouds from earth to heaven as the son of man. 
Daniel says it like this in chapter seven. He says, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. That's God the Father. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. Hang on to that, that'll be important later. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. That's Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Interestingly, this is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. He likes to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And he's referring to this human figure who ascends from earth to heaven to reign as king forever. But notice what John says here in chapter 1 of Revelation. He says that, yes, Jesus looks like a son of man, but also he has hair on his head white like wool. Just like the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. So John's saying, he's saying, I, 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 look, I looked at Jesus and I saw this figure who is both human and divine. The son and the father, one, reigning as king. Jesus is king. But John also says that he wears a robe down to his feet and a golden sash. The Jews would have known, oh, that's, that's the dress of a priest. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest. He's right now before the Father, going to God on our behalf, interceding for us. Jesus is both priest and king, which is good news for us because if Jesus wasn't a priest, he couldn't be our savior. He couldn't make the sacrifice on our behalf. And if he wasn't a king, then he couldn't be our Lord, the one to rule us and reign over all of creation. But, but, Jesus is both priest and king, both Savior and Lord. And, catch this, John says in verse 6, that now he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We also are priests who now get to live in God's presence because of Jesus. And we now get to live in a kingdom and get to rule with him because of Jesus. And John says that the eyes of Jesus are like blazing fire. I've just had this vision of his eyes stuck in my head all week. I can't shake it. It's this blazing holiness looking not just at us, but in us, through us. He sees with his penetrating, purifying, piercing gaze. His eyes are not drooping from weariness or closed from neglect. They are not uh, wide with surprise or downcast in sorrow. He's not worn out. He's not discouraged. He's not uncertain. His eyes are raging in furious, flashing splendor. Eyes of inexhaustible energy and untrampled hope. And his feet, John says, his feet are like bronze. Now again, that's a flashback to the book of Daniel. This time Daniel chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream a dream of this statue that represents the kingdoms of the world. And this statue has feet of clay. But it gets smashed and the statue is toppled. But Jesus here in Revelation chapter 1, John says he has feet of bronze. His kingdom's strong forever. John says his voice is like the sound of crashing waters. His face is shining like the sun. Have you ever stood next to a waterfall? Have you ever stared into the sun? I don't recommend it, kids. <laughs> And out of his mouth comes a sword. Jesus' word is strong. 
Hebrews chapter four says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Has your pulse quickened yet? John's goal here is to shatter our illusions of familiarity and to leave us in awe of the Christ because what we always need most is a clearer vision of Jesus. But a crisis of familiarity wasn't the only thing these seven churches are facing. They were also facing a crisis of fear. Fear. And we see this, it's pretty obvious in chapters two and three. Revelation 2.10 says that these believers are about to suffer Chapter 2, verse 13 says that one of them, Antipas, this guy, was actually already put to death for his faith. Chapter 3, verse 8 says these believers have little strength. They're facing persecution. Things like slander and financial hardship, pressure to compromise, exile, even death, because they are choosing to worship Jesus and Jesus only. And just a handful of years before Revelation was written, in the year AD 90, the Roman Empire was actually given a new name, the Imperium Eternum. The eternal empire, of which the emperor was supposedly the eternal king. In fact, the emperor Domitian commanded that the people address him as Lord and God. But the Christians refused to do it, and so they're facing a crisis of fear. But John says to them here in verse 5, he says, ah, actually, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the only king with an eternal kingdom. So yeah, I don't know who the president will be next year. But I know who will be king. And keep in mind, the guy writing this is John. John was Jesus' best friend on earth. If anybody is familiar with Jesus, it was John. He knew that voice. He recognized that face. But when John beholds the king of heaven, look what happens. Verses 17 and 18, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me. Imagine this towering heavenly figure reaching out to touch you. It would be utterly terrifying. He says, he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So whatever your crisis of fear is today, whatever worry is keeping you locked up, Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. Check it out. You remember that enemy that you couldn't defeat? You remember that fear that's kept you enslaved? Remember how death has locked up humanity ever since the garden? I have the keys. Got them from my dad. And now, all of his power, the power that created the cosmos, the power that parted the Red Sea and knocked down the walls of Jericho, the, the power that shut the mouths of the lions and orchestrated the virgin birth, the power that cleansed the lepers and opened blind eyes, the power that kept Jesus on the cross and brought him out of the grave, the power that now rules the universe, seated at God's right hand, is the same power that is protecting us. So whom shall I fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? 
Because Jesus says this to John in verses 19 and 20 to close out chapter one. He says, write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Hold on. Do you remember where Jesus was when John first saw him in this vision? Verse 13. He's among the lampstands. Jesus is with his church. He's not distant. He's not just the man upstairs or an absentee landlord. He's here. He's here. And listen, when we first went into lockdown, I got to admit that I had high hopes for this season, that this was going to teach us to value the church and getting to be a part of God's people and getting to gather together and worship in a way that we never had before, that we were going to come back with renewed gratitude and fervor. And I got to admit that the longer we go in this season, the more I fear that the opposite is happening and that we are taking it for granted and that maybe, maybe we, maybe some of you are deciding that, well, maybe church isn't all that important after all. Maybe you just don't see the point anymore. But listen, this is not just a group of people watching some video or a little group of people gathered together at 800 Dan Jones Road. No, Revelation chapter one says that we are a heavenly lampstand attacked by the demons, but guarded by the angels, schemed against by the devil, hated by the world, but lit by the spirit, upheld by the father's will and sustained and triumphant by the son's glorious power. And what we always need most is a clearer vision of Jesus. I love this text. <laughs> and I love the picture of Jesus that it gives us. But you know, even now, the best we get is just a partial picture, right? Just a glimpse of him. But a day's coming, church. First Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Years ago, there was a handsome young man by the name of William Dyke. And although he'd been struck blind at the age of 10, William did not let his handicap slow him down. He attended graduate school in England where he met the daughter of a British admiral and he fell in love and proposed and she happily accepted However, before giving his daughter's hand in marriage, the admiral insisted that William undergo a potentially dangerous surgery to attempt to restore his sight. And William agreed, but he too had a condition. He insisted that after the surgery, the gauze remain on his eyes until the moment of the wedding because he wanted his bride's face to be the first thing that he saw. The surgery was completed and the wedding day came. And William's father stood next to his son up at the front of the church as the bride walked down the aisle. And as she walked, William's father began to unwind the gauze from his eyes. No one knew if the operation had been successful. And just as William's bride arrived before him at the altar, the last strand of gauze was pulled away and he stood face to face with his beloved. The entire congregation waited breathless, wondering if William could actually see. And finally he spoke. Words that those in attendance never forgot. He said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. 
And listen, church, a day's coming when that story's gonna be ours. The roles will be reversed, for we are the bride. And right now we can only catch a brief glimpse of our groom, but then we shall see face to face and the veil will be removed and we will finally look fully into the face of the one whom we have loved. And he will be more beautiful than we have ever imagined. Will you pray with me? And so, Jesus, King of heaven, great high priest, son of man, ancient of days, until that day, we ask that you would give us, give us always, now and forever, a clearer vision of you. It is in your name, the name that is above every name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.